Our speaker this evening is Maya Jasanov, who serves as the Coolidge Professor of History at Harvard University. Professor Jasanov holds an undergraduate degree from Harvard College, a master's degree from Oxford, and a doctorate from Yale. Her teaching and research range from the history of the British Empire into global history and considers moments of encounter between states, cultures, and people. She has been a fellow at the New York Public Library's Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers, the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress, the Guggenheim, and an ACLS Charles A. Riskamp Fellow. Professor Jasanoff's first book, Edge of Empire, Lives, Culture, and Conquest in the East, 1750 to 1850, published by Knopf in 2005, was awarded the Buff Cooper, I'm sorry, Duff Cooper Prize, uh, and was a book of the year selection in numerous publications. Her second book, Liberty's Exiles, American Loyalists in the Revolutionary World, also published by Knopf in 2011, received the 2012 National Book Critics Circle Award for Nonfiction and the George Washington Book Prize. Tonight, Professor Jasanoff will discuss, will discuss her new book, Don Watch, Joseph Conrad in a Global World, which examines the dynamics of a modern globalization through the life and times of the novelist Joseph Conrad. So please join me in welcoming Professor Maya Jasanoff to the Boston Athenaeum. Thank you all very much. It's really wonderful to be here. I mean, what a beautiful space, right? I mean, you just walk in and it's it's fantastic uh, to be here. And so um, I hope that you don't lose sight of the beauty of this space, even as I try over the next hour or so to carry you to many other spaces around the world. And I want to begin by inviting you to imagine a world in which people move very easily from one continent and one country to another. They can, for example, move across Europe without needing a special visa or passport. Thanks to new technology, information travels incredibly rapidly from one place to another as well, from Tokyo to Delhi, to, from Paris to New York to Buenos Aires. This is a world also in which investment and goods can travel and move freely among continents, relatively unhindered by tariffs or by other kinds of protectionist measures. And it's a world as well in which things are feeling a little unsteady, in which the world's only superpower is teetering and conscious of the rise of new rivals. A world in which while many people are winning from this kind of interconnectedness, there are also losers who feel their jobs getting squeezed, who are aware of inequality being on the rise, who feel that political systems are unresponsive to their needs, making conditions ripe for the rise of populists. Welcome to the world around 1900. This is the world of Joseph Conrad, the subject of my book and my talk tonight. In an oeuvre of remarkable geographical and topical range, Joseph Conrad captured the forces that I just described and captured a whole host of phenomena that might as well be ripped from the headlines of just this past year. In Books such as The Secret Agent, in The Secret Agent of 1907, Conrad described terrorism in London and indeed a plot by the Russians to try to unsettle the liberty-loving government of Great Britain. In his novel Lord Jim, among many other works set at sea, Conrad talked about a shipping accident in the Indian Ocean, something that I actually was surprised to find in the headlines this year, but the number of shipping accidents, as you guys have probably seen in the South, uh, South China Sea this year, has been, has been quite remarkable. Um, Conrad wrote about political upheaval in South America in his novel Nostromo of 1904, which also deals with the workings of multinational capitalism. And he wrote most 
uh, famously or infamously, as the case may be, about violence and imperial exploitation in Central Africa in the work of his that is by far the best known to American readers today, namely his 1899 novella, Heart of Darkness. In these and in a whole range of other books that take on uh, uh, these kinds of themes, Conrad sketched a whole world of interconnections, a world of tensions, a world of connections, and a world of divisions, a world that could be captured, I think, very much by a term that is familiar to us today, albeit unknown to him then in the late 19th century, and that term is globalization. And what I've tried to understand in my work is how this one person could manage to see all of these things from a century ago, and that he could manage to do this in a corpus of literature which he produced in his third language, English, a language which he learned only as an adult. And the answer that I want to try to sketch out for you is that he was able to do this because he lived a remarkably international life and he did it at a remarkably globalized time. Conrad lived through a step change in the scale and range of what we would today call globalization, connections of ideas and goods and trade and people across continents. And what's more, he didn't just live through it. He himself, in his own life course, embodied it. The story of Joseph Conrad begins in present-day Ukraine, in a small town called Berdichev, where on December 3rd, 1857, 160 years ago yesterday, uh, Józef Teodor Konrad Korzeniowski was born to Polish parents, members of the uh, traditional Schlachta class uh, involved in landowning, uh, and part of a Polish community living in present-day Ukraine as subjects of the Russian Empire. This was a time when Poland itself did not exist on the map. It had been partitioned by the empires of Austria-Hungary, by Prussia, and by Russia in the late 18th century, and ethnic Poles were dispersed across these different empires, uh, and many of them, including the Korzeniowski family, felt deeply committed to nationalism, to the idea of reinstating a Polish nation-state that had independence uh, as against these different imperial regimes. So young Conrad, uh, with a K, as he was called by his family, was raised in an environment of fervent Polish romantic nationalism. His father, Apollo, who you see here uh, with the twirled mustache, uh, was uh, by uh, day a, a land kind of estate manager, but by uh, vocation, he was a writer. And he wrote uh, poetry, he wrote plays, he translated texts from French into Polish, uh, and he also wrote a lot of political journalism, uh, all very much invested in trying to uh, contribute to this Polish nationalist movement that was gaining strength in the 19th century. And when Conrad, who you see here in the middle, was about three years old, uh, his father, Apollo, moved the family to Warsaw, where he was involved in starting up an underground newspaper, which was going to, uh, which was part of a kind of revolutionary movement geared toward trying to foment uh, rebellion and revolution against the Russian occupiers of Warsaw. A few weeks before the first edition of the newspaper came off the press in 1861, the Korzeniowski family was at home in their apartment. It was late at night. Conrad was probably asleep. Apollo and Ava, Conrad's parents, were, were reading and, and, and doing some work. And there was a knock on the door and in barged uh, Russian czarist troops who arrested Apollo Korzeniowski on a charge of sedition for his activity in the underground press and marched him off to the Citadel prison in Warsaw where a bunch of political prisoners were being rounded up in a crackdown against this burgeoning revolutionary movement. I want to read you just a, a short passage from the book about this moment in young Conrad's life because it's a, um, it's a, it's a phase of his life while he himself was still uh, nonetheless incredibly young. He was three years old. Uh, it's, a, it's a phase of his life that would go on, I think, to be incredibly significant in shaping the trajectory of his future life and also in shaping his worldview. So uh, uh, this is uh, just after Apollo has been taken off to the prison uh, in Warsaw. 
Ava's mother rushed up from Berdichev to help. She may have looked after Conrad when Ava went every day to the Citadel, joining a crowd of women massed at the gates, seeking word of their jailed relatives. Every day they were refused. Sometimes we stand there a whole day in rain and cold, waiting for a short note, for some news, and sometimes we wait in vain. Once, to get warm and to pass the time, we counted ourselves. We were several score more than 200, Ava wrote. The crowd kept on growing as the arrests continued. Priests, rabbis, pastors, quote, people of all estates, wealth, age, and situation, among them several women, all locked away behind the blank brick walls. Unable to see her husband, Ava pumped the guards for updates about Apollo's health. She delivered clean sheets and food for him, and after much lobbying, was allowed to give him a prayer book and Robertson's textbook for learning English. At 10-day intervals, she was permitted to write Apollo a short note. If the censors approved it, he got to read it and write her a line back. Christmas Eve, 1861, two months after his arrest. Letters for Apollo had been piling up at home, gifts from friends and relatives, prayers and blessings. Ava made her way through the city's sad, black, and silent streets for her daily visit to the fortress. She found the Citadel compound, as usual, crowded with prisoners' relatives, patient, impatient. In the last month or so, Ava had finally been allowed to see Apollo a couple of times, in five-minute snatches through, through a tight wire mesh, with guards on both sides, guards in ordinary uniforms, guards in fancy uniforms, guards in no particular uniform, all of them shouting, not allowed, when anything of substance got said. Ava and Apollo used their allotment, laughing and joking, because the sight of tears is not liked, they said, and besides, it was better to keep their spirits up. Today would be different. As a holiday favor, families were to be granted the chance to meet briefly without a fence between them. Ava peered around shawled shoulders and scarved heads to spot Apollo coming out. There, there, was that him? He looked so thin, his face blotchy, his beard like a clump of burrs. Across an invisible line of freedom, they clutched hands. They broke a sacramental wafer, blessed by a priest, and prayed. Conrad had just turned four. Much later, he would recall that, quote, in the courtyard of this citadel, Characteristically for our nation, my childhood memories begin, unquote. Apollo was taken to trial uh, and was convicted of sedition, and the family was sentenced to exile. They were sent off to uh, far uh, eastern Russia, kind of to the borders, or I should say central Russia, really, to the borders of Siberia. And uh, there they lived amid a handful of other Polish uh, emigre prisoners in conditions of great uh, deprivation. Uh, it was cold. There were winds that would whip off of the White Sea and sort of penetrate the walls of their dank cabin. And perhaps not altogether surprisingly, under these circumstances, uh, both Apollo and Eva Korzeniowski contracted tuberculosis. Uh, Eva Korzeniowski died in their, uh, uh, in, in, in their exile when Conrad was uh, about uh, seven years old, and Apollo uh, died when Conrad was 11 years old. Uh, so for the course of these early years of his life, he basically watched, uh, he lived in exile, he watched both of his parents essentially wasting away, uh, in the first instance from tuberculosis, and then in the second with his father also from grief. Uh, he ended up being shunted around uh, from uh, one relative to another, one guardian uh, to another, friends of the family and so on. His mother's uncle more or less uh, looked after him financially uh, and became a kind of uh, another uh, mentor to him in life as against the father who was this romantic nationalist committed to writing, to poetry, to having his child be steeped in the verses of Polish poets like Adam Mickiewicz the uh, uh, Conrad's maternal uncle was then this voice of pragmatism and reason. And he had the idea that instead of trying to have this romantic struggle against empire to reinstate the Polish nation, instead, you know what, deal with it. Here's the Russian empire. Let's try to make our way as best we can in it. So he would channel all of this advice to Conrad as he was growing up saying, you know, you should find a career and you should do something sensible and let go of all of that Korzeniowski romanticism and, you know, settle 
down to something uh, more, uh, more stable and more uh, practical. Well, how did young Conrad react to this, orphaned uh, with this extremely traumatic childhood? At the age of 16, Conrad Korzeniowski decided that what he really wanted more than anything was to go off and become a sailor, a choice that to his maternal uncle obviously seemed the very opposite of pragmatism, uh, and a choice that you might think was a little bit odd, also coming from somebody who grew up hundreds of miles from the sea. And yet this was a choice that I think squares partly, of course, with that kind of romantic inheritance, but also squares very much with the traumatic inheritance of somebody who had been raised without a home, somebody who had been raised for some of his life without a family, somebody who had been adrift long before he ever set foot on a ship. And with his uncle's reluctant blessing, Konrad Korzeniowski thus set off uh, in, the, uh, in 1874, a little bit before his 17th birthday, uh, to go off and find a ship and train to be a sailor. This would end up being a foundational part of his career. He spent uh, the next 20 years working on and off as a professional sailor. 20 years well before he ever began to do any writing, this was a career. Uh, and I think some of his kind of stick-to-itness about the career may, may have been his response to the uncle who was saying, this is a very impractical thing to do, you'll never kind of make it. Uh, but in fact, Conrad did stick with it and work his way uh, through this career uh, for, uh, as I say, for a couple of decades. And it was at sea that Conrad came to see uh, another uh, side of the world, many other sides of the world, as he sailed between continents uh, and as he navigated and worked on the roots of trade and commerce and to a lesser extent migration that were really knitting the world together in new ways at this time. It was also at sea that he um, just had a working life, a day-to-day -day experience that would make its way into a lot of his fiction. Something like half of his fiction is set on ships among sailors uh, or uh, at sea. Uh, and this kind of uh, diurnal round of participating in a shipboard community would in form uh, uh, huge uh, uh, dimensions, I think, of Conrad's sense of what it was to be in the world, of what it was to be in a community. And uh, in order to get a flavor for what that experience was like, um, one of the things that I myself did as I was working on this book was um, I realized as I was reading all of this, Conrad, that I myself would have to get a sense for what it was actually like to be on these really long sea voyages. Because as little as 50 years ago, almost any one of us who traveled, say, to Europe would probably have done so by sea 50, 60 years ago. It's only really in the last generation or two that people have lost the feel for what it's like to be on a long sea voyage. And this is a really constitutive part of the world experience of travel and of interconnection until pretty recently. So I actually ended up taking the modern equivalent of a vessel like this one, uh, which is a container ship. Uh, and I traveled from Hong Kong to England on a container ship. I spent four weeks on this thing, uh, uh, getting a feel for what it was like to be on the ship day in, day out. Uh, and some of uh, what I learned from that experience, I was then able to put together with what I read about the sailing life in the late 19th century. Uh, and I used that experience partly to help me write um, about Conrad's life at sea in a passage that I want to read you a little bit of uh, now. All on the starboard watch, ahoy, a shout in the dark, banging on the scuttle. Do you hear the news there, sleepers? Ordinary seaman Conrad Korzeniowski opened sticky eyes to a stack of bunks and slumbering bodies. Faint light dropped from a glass prism overhead. He breathed in the mold and sour breath and registered where he was, on board the Duke of Sutherland, six weeks out from London, four days over the line, seven bells into the morning watch. He swung his feet over the rim of the bunk and clambered up the companionway, heels tender from the nighttime nibbling of rats. A quick rinse and wipe down with a cloth, then into the galley to scoop a few ladles of gray porridge from the kid. He propped himself against a sail locker to eat, gulping coffee from a tin cup. In the early morning sun, the sea blazed white. Eight bells, 
8 a.m., start of the forenoon watch. He took his orders from the bosun, Myers, a mean, swaggering Barbadian. By now, Conrad had just enough seniority not to do the dirtiest of the slop work, washing the dishes, slushing the masts, but it was up to him and Peterson, the Swede, to sweep and swab the deck. He coiled lines and quick flicks over the belaying pins to make them fast and ran his broom aft. He'd never been on a ship as large as the Duke of Sutherland, or a voyage so long, bound for Australia via the Cape of Good Hope. By now, he didn't notice the way the ship hiked gently up to the windward side. Lolling in equatorial calm, it was hard to believe how it had churned and pitched five weeks ago off Ushant when they had run into a gale so ferocious it gave even the eldest seamen something to remember. But it had been a slack passage since, no northeasterly trades. The Duke of Sutherland sailed slowly into the windless doldrums, waiting for the southeasterlies to pick up. They took down the stout canvas sails meant for strong winds and bent on worn, softer ones to catch the shallow breaths of hot latitudes. The round of watches cycled through interchangeable days. Near the Azores, some larks and starlings flew on board and a horned owl. The sailors caged them up for company, reminders of land and the shoreless ring of sea. It had been four years since Conrad's first voyage on the French bark Mont Blanc, that was his first time at sea, and it shook his every sense. On a ship, you're in motion without moving, in motion in your sleep, in motion in ways you never moved before, swaying, surging, heaving, pitching, rolling, yawing. On high seas, you may be tossed till you can't tell down from up. Your eyes pulse in your head, salt surges into your mouth, and you hunch vomiting over the leeward rail. He came to know the particular below-deck's stench, clammy and dank, best defeated by smoking a pipe or learning to shut your nose entirely. He settled into the rhythm of a life measured out in shifts. He discovered the infinite qualities of light on water. There's rarely something to look at. There's always something to see. People are always asleep. People are always awake. You're never alone. You're always isolated. On two more voyages out of Marseille, he'd learned the ropes in French. Now he was learning them again in English. A rope was a line, a speed was a knot, and a knot was a hitch. On a calm day like this, Conrad could practice his skills with the chafing gear. It was said that the test of a true seaman was what he could do when you put a marlin spike in his hand. A line could be a messy thing when you looked at it up close, frayed, spliced, wound, pointed, foxed. First, he wormed, twisting some yarn between the line's fraying strands. Then he parceled, wrapping the line in tarred canvas to clad it against the rain. Last, he served, winding yarn around the strands and pulling it taut on a serving board. Eight bells, 4 p.m., first dog watch. More coiling lines, stowing gear, sweeping and washing. The off-duty men sprawled out on the poop deck. Many of them had sailed together before, for better or worse, and shared a companionable ease. Officially, there was no talking while on watch, which suited Conrad well enough. He didn't mix well with this crew. It wasn't so much that he wasn't English. Half of them weren't either. Of the 25 crew, there were four Scandinavians, three Canadians, two Heligolanders, two Barbadians, one New Yorker, and one Pole, him. But he felt himself to be of another class, and he showed it. When the crew had signed the register at the shipping office in London, five of them couldn't even write their own names and just marked an illiterate X. He inscribed himself with distinction as Conrad de Korzhenyovsky, inserting an aristocratic day to convey his schlachta birth. He notched his D elegantly above the line and cut the Z below with a flourish. Eight bells, 8 p.m., first night watch. His turn to take a two-hour trick at the helm. He wrapped his palms around handles, softened by thousands of grips, feeling the light tension on the tiller. It was easier to stay on course, steering by the horizon than the compass, which meant it was harder to steer by night. Keeping awake was another challenge. Gravy-eyed, they called it. He focused on the compass paper, a bright spot punched through the darkness by the glowing binnacle lamp. His head sagged. He snapped it up. Some men reeled off multiplication tables to stay awake, or sequences of kings and popes. His eyes blurred. He blinked them clear. He recited verses in his head, 
the poets of his boyhood, Mitskevich and Swavatsky, kept him good company in the still spangled night of the Southern Ocean. The little one bell marked midnight, second night watch. He went down to the half deck and hoisted himself into his bunk. In the dark, men rummaged for caps and shoes. He heard clattering up the ladders, creaking footfalls on deck, and the soft plash of the sea against the hull. Another day done. December 3rd, 1878, his 21st birthday. Conrad had started his sailing career in France. He spoke fluent French, as did many Poles of his social class, and there was a Polish diaspora in France, so he had some connections to Poles who were there who could kind of help him on his way. He ended up spending most of his career, however, as a British sailor. And although he would later declare very patriotically that I had said to myself that I was, if I was to become a seaman, I would be a British seaman and no other. It was a matter of deliberate choice. It was, in fact, a matter of circumstance in various ways, one of the circumstances being that the British Merchant Marine was by far the largest in the world at that time, and it was also open to uh, laborers from anywhere else in the world. It was big, it was growing, there was not enough manpower in Britain itself necessarily to supply uh, all of these ships, uh, and so this is why you have these very international crews working on these ships. And in fact, it's when Conrad first arrives in England in 1878 that he first starts to learn English at 21, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and he learns it partly, he says, by going through the newspapers in the pubs of the Eastern English port town of Lowestoft, uh, which is where he first arrived. And it's going through the papers, um, looking at classified ads, that he comes across this very ad, which is in the Times newspaper in September 1878. And as you see, it is an ad asking for sailors to go on a ship to Australia, and it is through this shipping agent who is called Sutherland that he ends up on the ship No Connection, the Duke of Sutherland, which you see depicted the very ship here, um, sailing off to Australia. Over the next um, 15, 16 years, Conrad would be in some ways a poster child of immigrant success in Britain. It's a time when uh, there's uh, increasing anxieties in different parts of the world about uh, immigrants, particularly as will happen increasingly toward the end of the 19th century, Jewish immigrants coming from Eastern Europe. But Britain in this period is uh, quite open to outsiders. There's no immigration restrictions. There's no police surveillance. There's, there's none of the kind of authoritarianism that Conrad knew, of course, from the Russian Empire. Um, and this career that he's in, the Merchant Marine, is one that is really open to talent. You take a series of exams, and if you pass the exams, you make your way up. You do have to go to cram schools for them, but it's not a case where you have to like buy your way in or have connections only to get the different certifications. So he goes over the course of these years from being Konrad Korzeniowski, not speaking a word of English, to progressively Joseph Conrad, who becomes an English citizen in 1886, who passes a series of exams and becomes a certified captain in the British Merchant Marine. Uh, you can see him here uh, in his 30s on board a clipper called the Torrance, which was a passenger clipper going to Australia, here surrounded by uh, the apprentices on board this ship. This is Captain uh, uh, Conrad uh, Korzeniowski. Well, he was serving as first mate on the ship, even though he was a certified captain. Uh, and he's really a part of this, uh, this profession, this British uh, establishment profession, uh, and he is a British citizen. On the other hand... He also is something of a canary in a coal mine because as he is making his way through this industry, the industry is changing around him. It is transitioning from uh, sailing ships increasingly over to steamships as improvements are made to maritime engines, as costs shift, as the, uh, the tonnage of these steamships gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And what Conrad experiences in this industry is what a lot of people are experiencing actually in the last sort of 20 years with digitization taking over, that you see many advantages to the new technology. The steamship is faster, it's more reliable. It's not always faster, actually, I take that back. It is more reliable, however. Um, it can go on a schedule, it can go against uh, currents, it can use uh, the Suez Canal as a shortcut, which is uh, difficult for sailing ships because of the currents in the Red Sea. Uh, so the steamship is really uh, uh, 
uh, a major engine of economic and uh, migrant uh, success in the in the later 19th and early 20th century. It is the thing that makes passages cheap enough that means that the whole history of the United States has changed, right, as tens of millions of people flow into the United States uh, across the Atlantic in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. It is the way that global trade really kicks into a new gear. But alongside that, the sailing ships get pushed aside, and the whole set of skills that people had to have on those sailing ships become increasingly obsolete, in the same way that being a film developer today is not a very, uh, uh, you know, it's not an occupation that has uh, a lot of hiring going on uh, in that industry right now. Um, and, uh, and so Conrad belongs to that kind of last generation of people who have come up through sail, and he comes as a result to see the transition from sail to steam as more than just a transition in different kinds of technologies. He comes to see it as a transition in different ways of life. And this is what I meant earlier about saying that this experience as a sailor really informs his, his fiction and his worldview in fundamental ways. Because it is from the deck of a sailing ship that Conrad sees parts of the world, Southeast Asia in particular, Australia, uh, parts of the Mediterranean, uh, and parts of the Caribbean, but it is from the deck of the sailing ship that he also sees uh, what community is about and what so-called progress is about. And he sees the transition as one in which a set of ideals that he attaches to the sailing ship about honor, about uh, kind of craftsmanship, about a connection to each other in a community, about a connection to nature, a connection to forces bigger than yourself, are getting pushed aside in favor of a new way of being that is mechanized, uh, uh, sort of selfish, uh, that, that uh, does away with kinds of community in favor of individualism, in which people don't have skills anymore, they don't have to read the weather in the same way, they just shovel the coal into the boiler or fix the piece of the machinery as it cranks on ceaselessly uh, at odds with kind of human uh, qualities that he that he revered. So the sailing ship for Conrad becomes this kind of uh, bastion of of all the values he likes best. It's all male. It's British. It's white. It's honorable. Uh, it has craft, etc. And the steamship is anything but. When you read Conrad, a sure sign that something is going to go wrong in his world is when it is set on a steamship. <laughs> And there is no better example of this than his novella, Heart of Darkness, which was based on one of his only voyages on a steamship himself. And this was a job that he took in 1890 at a time when the labor market is getting squeezed, when he's finding it much harder to get jobs uh, at his rank, uh, and when, by force of circumstance, um, I mean, again, he would later say, another kind of rule of thumb with Conrad, whenever he later says, I did this out of choice or out of, you know, it was deliberate, it's not. Like, there's another reason for it. Um, so he would later say, I went to Africa because it was a boyhood dream and I always wanted to go to Africa. In fact, um, he went to Africa partly because he couldn't get a better job. Uh, and he ended up on a three-year contract on uh, uh, to captain river steamers going up and down the Congo River in the newly established Congo Free State in Central Africa, which was run under the aegis of the Belgian King Leopold II. Um, the Congo Free State as the name suggests, was committed to ideals of freedom. It was supposed to have free trade. It was supposed to have free labor. It was supposed to be kind of the civilizing mission in its very best possible form. And in fact, it was absolutely the opposite. It was extractive, exploitative. It had uh, a labor regime that was every bit as bad as slavery. It had government monopolies. It was completely at odds with everything that European civilizers said that it would be, and it was that which Conrad saw firsthand when he went there to captain this ship. His experience in, Con in uh, Congo was so dispiriting that after just one voyage up and down the river, he broke his three-year contract, he came home in a state of uh, physical illness and also psychological breakdown, one of many depressive 
breakdowns that he would have over the course of his life. And I think it really consolidated for him both the absolute condemnation of the kind of civilizing mission in its imperial form that he would pour into Heart of Darkness, but also that sense that something about what passed for progress in the form of the steamship, in the form of new technology, under the name of civilization, that there was something wrong with that, that there was something corrupt in it, that there was violence in it, that there was a dark side to all of these things that everybody was saying uh, were, were good. Conrad would never really sail the same way again after his trip to Congo. He had that one job on the Torrance, the passenger clipper, um, but he gradually found it, I mean, he was finding it harder and harder to get jobs. He was entering his late 30s, uh, and, and he gradually just basically started to give up on finding jobs at sea. This was... Um, fostered in part by the fact that by then he had actually begun doing something else. And that is that he had begun writing. We don't know when Conrad started writing. Uh, we do know that he had started to do it by 1889, 1890 or so, when he goes off to Congo. And we know this because he carried with him two manuscripts. One of them was the first diary, and the only, well, I should say the only diary that we know that he ever kept. It's a small notebook in which he jotted down notes of his uh, travels from the mouth of the Congo River up to the first navigable point of it, and then kept notes on how to navigate the river itself. Because even though it's a river and it kind of goes one way and comes down the other, uh, it has shifting sandbanks and lots of channels and, 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 and tributaries and so on. And so he was taking careful notes to navigate the river that he could use uh, when he had to captain himself. Uh, those notes you see on the, uh, the, the left-hand side there, and those are in a book, uh, a little notebook that's actually over in the Harvard Library here and is available online. It's all digitized. You can take a look at it uh, and, and try to read his handwriting yourself. Actually, his handwriting is not that bad, thankfully, for me. Um, what he also carried with him, though, was the manuscript of his first emerging novel. And a lot of people read his notes from Congo alongside Heart of Darkness, which is the novella he would later base on that experience. But I think it's interesting to read his notes in Congo alongside the novel that he was already starting to write at the time. The novel is set in Southeast Asia, a region that he had sailed in a lot prior to this, the first region in which, in fact, he had sailed at any length on a, on a steamship in, and in which he had been going up and down rivers in Borneo. So there's a lot of interesting sorts of uh, conversations across these sites in Conrad's work. Uh, and so what I'm showing you here is actually a page from that manuscript. You can see some of his doodles, uh, which are kind of neat. Uh, and this manuscript is held uh, in Philadelphia in the Rosenbach Library. And it went with him to Congo and back. It went with him on his subsequent voyages. And he worked on it in London between voyages, finally completing it and publishing it in 1894 as the novel Almer's Folly. I say Conrad saw a global world and embodied it. And, and one of the things that comes into his fiction, I think, is this sense that he's been to all of these different places. And what he sees in one place, he brings into another place. What he sees in Borneo informs what he sees in Congo. What he sees in Congo informs how he writes about Borneo. And the master turn in Heart of Darkness is to take a story that is in some ways about Congo and about imperial activities by Europeans overseas, but to set it on the deck of a ship in London in the Thames estuary. And so again, he's linking places up. And I think this is a piece of his kind of global vision uh, that, that I find uh, uh, very kind of important to unpack because what he's understanding is that we are all connected uh, in very strong ways. From 1894 onward, Conrad would never sail again he would indeed scarcely even leave the United Kingdom again. He married an 18-year-old uh, working-class English girl named Jessie. Uh, he was at that time himself well into his 30s. Um, they were, on the face of it, completely different and have gout. Jessie had a bad knee and, and, and rheumatism and so on. And the, one of them or the other of them was pretty much always sick. Uh, and they supported each other very lovingly through, through these travails. Um, a lot of people were very sniffy about her because she wasn't a literary person 
person at all, but uh, but they had she she took care of him in, in various ways, and, and he of her. They went on to have two sons. Uh, they lived chiefly in Kent uh, in rented accommodation. Conrad never owned a house in his life. Um, he was critically acclaimed, but not commercially successful. So he was constantly sort of struggling to make ends meet. Uh, and uh, and his early career as a writer is really spent uh, uh, against this backdrop of a of a kind of increasingly cemented family life in rural England, as against revisiting all of his experiences and real world episodes that go on to inform this remarkably international assortment of fiction. Uh, I've put together this map, which uh, the backdrop of which is a map of the British Empire at Conrad's, uh, at the peak of Conrad's life uh, and the peak of the British Empire's power uh, around 1900. And all of the territories marked pink connote places of uh, under British rule, uh, about a quarter of the world. Uh, and yet, as you'll see, the, the speech bubbles indicate the locations of Conrad's major fiction, and not one of it, one, not one of them is set in a British colony. It's quite a remarkable perspective on the world for a writer of that time. Very much at odds with the other writer who was very well known at that time, viz. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, uh, who was kind of the informal poet laureate of the British Empire and wrote all about British India in particular. Conrad is like the anti-Kipling in a certain way. So he goes over the world. He goes over these experiences. He turns it into this incredible corpus of fiction, scarcely ever leaving the UK, um, with one notable exception. And the last passage from the book I'd like to read to you tonight um, is about that one and only trip, or most significant trip, I should say, that Conrad took uh, to the European continent uh, later in his life. Uh, and the passage that I'm going to read to you begins in 1910. Conrad has, just, has been struggling to work on his novel Under Western Eyes, which kind of like his novel The Secret Agent deals with uh, revolutionaries kind of running around, and in this case in continental Europe. The, the, the specter of the Russian Empire is, is shadowing the whole novel. There's a lot of ways in which he's kind of revisiting some of the traumas of his childhood at this time, and the novel is very difficult for him to write. Uh, and in January 1910, Conrad finally finished Under Western Eyes and went up to London to deliver the last installment to his literary agent, J.B. Pinker, in person. He came back to the cottage, crawled into his tiny room, curled up in a ball on the couch, and wouldn't budge. Jesse found him trembling and babbling, his neck and tongue alarmingly swollen. Nobody could understand what he said because he was speaking Polish. For weeks, he remained delirious, conversing with the characters of his novels and lapsing into English only to curse Pinker, his literary agent, something many authors might do today, uh, or recite the service for burial at sea. Four-year-old John, who'd seen his father sick so often he used to play at being ill by wrapping himself in a blanket and groaning, was so frightened that he never played the game again. Jessie finally discovered what had triggered her husband's breakdown. Conrad and Pinker had gotten into a fight about money, and the furious agent said something the author couldn't forget. As Conrad would write to him, you told me that I did not speak English to you. Conrad would rarely ever write fiction with the same passion and intensity again. He crept back to work, quote, more crippled mentally than physically, unquote, and resumed a novel called Chance, which he'd started in 1907. Even as he wrote it, he knew it wasn't his best. Although it featured Marlowe, once again, the narrator of both Heart of Darkness and Lord Jim, Conrad deliberately made it less complicated than Lord Jim, English in personages and locality, much easier to follow and understand, quote unquote. Marlowe, in his older age, had gotten jaded, grumpy, and almost comically misogynistic. Conrad contrasted Marlowe's dyspeptic rants with the only fully rounded heroine he'd ever written, Flora de Barral, the spirited daughter of a ruined banker. A picture of her adorned the dust jacket of the finished novel, which was published in January 1914. And just like that, the 56-year-old author had his first bestseller. Chance went into five printings in as many months, Edward Garnett attributed the book's success to the cover design, others to its appealing heroine and its relative narrative simplicity. Conrad could only smirk at the irony of fortune shining into the twilight of his imagination. 
How I would have felt about it 10 or 8 years ago, I can't say. Now I can't even pretend I am elated, he confessed to John Galsworthy. If I had Nostromo or Lord Jim in my desk or only in my head, I would feel differently, no doubt. In the glow of this newfound material comfort, some young Polish friends, Józef and Otolia Reitinger, invited the Conrads to visit their family country house near Krakow. Jessie was thrilled by the idea of seeing her husband's native country for the first time, despite an injury that made walking painful for her. The timing worked well for Conrad, who had just finished another novel, and it seemed a good time to travel with the boys, too. The prospect of the trip to Poland, indeed, caused such an excitement in the household that if I had not accepted immediately, I would have been torn to pieces by my wife and children, Conrad wrote to Galsworthy on the morning of their departure. John yelled from morning, morning till night. Boris, the elder son, rushed about in the car on errands of his own contriving. Jesse, as usual, kept everything organized, while Conrad, equally characteristically, managed to muddle things up. He'd failed to put his full name, Korzeniowski, on the passport application, and the correct documents had arrived only the day before. As to this Polish journey, I depart on it with mixed feelings, Conrad confessed. He welcomed the idea of showing and sharing the sights of his youth, yet he worried that places once so familiar to him might now feel foreign. In 1874, I got into a train in Krakow, Vienna Express, on my way to the sea, as a man might get into a dream. And here is the dream going on still. Only now it is peopled mostly by ghosts, and the moment of awakening draws near. The date at the top of the page was July 25th, 1914. He had no idea what an awakening was in store. So the Conrad family goes off to Poland, and World War I breaks out the same week. And they're all British citizens, and they're stuck on the wrong side of enemy lines. And Conrad ends up spending about three months. Uh, first, the family goes off kind of to be away from the fray to the mountain resort of Zakopane in the Tatra Mountains. Uh, and Conrad spends months basically working through various friends, uh, his agent, uh, and his American publisher, actually, to get papers to get them out. And they go actually via Vienna um, out through the Mediterranean, not unlike his first voyage to England. And they end up arriving in England on a Dutch mailboat that's come from the East Indies. So it's sort of like one journey that takes every element of his past and sort of throws it in. Um, and I end the book with um, with this trip to Poland and with Conrad's final decade uh, of writing, he dies in 1924, because I think that this moment of World War I is a, is a pivotal moment for thinking about what happens to that globalized world, right? In a certain way, World War I marks the end of an era of relatively open borders, of an era of relatively free trade, and it also marks the end of an era of certain kinds of big empires, which begin to fall apart after World War I, uh, and then particularly after World War II. So if we want to look at the shape of the world of nation states that we live in today, we can see it really coming into its own, coming into being in the wake of World War I, and it's a world very different from the one that Conrad himself inhabited. Conrad was very skeptical of this new world, and as he was growing older, very consciously, as you could hear, even from those quotes I read you from 1914, growing old very consciously, feeling physically ill. You see an old picture, I mean, a, a late picture of him here with his hand bandaged for gout. Uh, he wrote a series of novels, very few of which are read now, very few of which had, none of which really had anything like the kind of literary innovation that marked his earlier fiction, and which are being written alongside uh, the, the likes of, say, Ulysses by James Joyce, right? I mean, this is a time when Conrad is actually really behind the times, having been ahead of them in many ways as an author before. And I was left with this moment of thinking about what to, what to, what to make of it. You know, here's a guy who in many ways was on a vanguard, who, who was a, an emigrant you know, a century before nowadays we're all talking about immigration, who, who saw political upheaval and conspiracy and terrorism kind of firsthand a century before Al-Qaeda and ISIS, who uh, witnessed the workings of multinational capitalism uh, on board a ship and so on, a century before nowadays when 90% of all world trade travels by sea. Um, he saw all of this stuff, and yet he ends up in this period after World War I sort of out of step. 
What is that about? I think what it's about is that what Conrad recognized was that the solution to some of the problems that he saw in the globalized world was not as simple as saying, let's have nationalism or let's have a defining ideology like Bolshevism, which was, of course, very popular in his era. Conrad was skeptical of all of these kinds of totalizing ideologies, and he was very skeptical of the kinds of exclusionary forms that nationalism or ideologies could take. Uh, and so he seems out of step in the 1920s, and he's a backward-looking person in certain respects, and yet in other ways I think that we can revisit some of that skepticism in our own moment as we once again try to navigate a world in which it looks like what's happening under globalization isn't quite working exactly how everyone would want, and yet what are the alternatives that we might be drawn to instead? And I feel myself, at least, kind of stumbling through a time of incredible interconnection, but also a time of incredible fragmentation, sort of wondering what to do about it. So for me, this is actually the takeaway of Conrad, which is that reading about him tells us something about his times, but also something about our own. And I think for me, what is most important is, are, are three things. That he shows how everything is connected. That what happens over there is also going to have an impact over here. It may be coming from over here. There might be a blowback. We are all connected. He insists, second, on making us look at the paradoxes and the problems in narratives of progress and remembering that what's progress for one person isn't necessarily for somebody else and that sometimes values can be at odds. And finally, and perhaps most of all, I think he shines a light on how every one of us is caught up in a system bigger than ourselves. We live in a time and a place as Americans in the, in the early 21st century where we have a lot of freedom and we like to celebrate that and think of ourselves as going through a journey of self-actualization through our lives. And yet every one of us is bounded by institutions and governments and passports and all the rest of it. And we run into constraints. Sometimes others run into more constraints just as we run into possibilities. And that awareness, I think, of understanding how we don't necessarily get to make all of the choices, I think is very important in thinking about a kind of ethics of globalization. Because in the end, I think that Conrad is more than just a novelist of globalization. He is a kind of ethicist for an interconnected world. Because he makes us think about how each of us is connected to other people and bound up into larger systems. His characters rarely reach happy endings in his books. But I think reading them leaves me, at least, with an injunction and a cautionary tale and an invitation to try to find some sort of better answer for our society and for ourselves. Thanks a lot.